Welcome to the Spit It Out podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Avi Robbins. We are bringing you engaging discussions with thought leaders from academia and industry as we explore everything from what's in your saliva to why it's a good indicator of your overall health. Join us as we raise awareness around what saliva can tell us, why it's important for the future of healthcare, and what some really awesome people are doing about it today. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Delphine Dean from Clemson University. I met Delphine last year at Saliva Direct's first annual conference in Chicago. She's done some great work in the field of bioengineering diagnostics and working with low-resource populations, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation on her work. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Delphine Dean. Thanks. (laughs) Dr. Dean earned her bachelor's and master's and PhD in electrical engineering and computer science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, as a lot of you might know. After earning her PhD in 2005, she moved to Clemson, where she is currently the Ron and Jane Lindsay Family Innovation Professor and Chair of Bioengineering at Clemson University. Her lab leads a wide range of studies focused on understanding mechanics and interactions of biological systems across length scales and instrumentation and device design. Her expertise is in nano to micro scale characterization of biological materials and tissues, and she works on understanding the effects of ionizing radiation on cells in addition to other biomedical research. She really works on translational design projects aimed at creating novel medical devices, sensors, and instrumentation for resource-poor settings. Over the last 10 years, she has led several research and design project teams with collaborators from Tanzania and India to design novel medical devices and diagnostics for low-resource clinical settings. She's currently the director of the Clemson India Center for Innovative Medical Devices and Sensors, and is committed to helping develop new technologies to support low-income and rural patients to be able to monitor their health and better connect them to health providers. Again, Delphine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. You know, excited to have you and talk through where you've been over the last year since we got to catch up and, you know, where you're headed in the future. Maybe for those that didn't have the pleasure of meeting you at last year's Saliva Direct Conference, you could give us a brief overview of your background, what got you into this space, and that'd be great. Yeah, so a little bit about myself. My background is in electrical engineering and computer science, but since graduate school was working kind of at the interface of electrical engineering, computer science, and biology. So I used to work on cartilage molecules and understanding arthritis through computational modeling. And then when I moved to Clemson, I found that students had a lot of interest in working on medical devices for low resource settings, both abroad and here in our own state of South Carolina. And that's how some of these projects started. Actually, this wasn't my area of research. It was Mm -hmm. students came up and were after class and were like, hey, we really want to work on these kinds of projects. Could we set something up? And that like spawned a whole (laughs) area of work. And that's kind of what I'd been doing before the pandemic. So I kind of had the basic science part of the lab still working on kind of computational modeling and very precise characterization of tissues. And then the applied side part of the lab that was developing medical devices, sensors, diagnostics for low resource settings, both here in the US and then abroad with collaborators. And then more recently, I set up and ran all of Clemson's COVID testing, which was saliva PCR test. And then we opened it up and did community testing as well. Yeah, so that was a whole transition. (laughs) I think if you told me before the pandemic that 
I would be heading up a clinical lab. I would have laughed because I think, as I mentioned, my degrees are in electrical engineering, computer science. (laughs) But I mean, I think the engineering side actually helped us a lot for how to scale up and be able to do huge numbers of tests per day. So at the peak during the BA1 Omicron surge, we were running 9,000 tests a day in a pretty small room, actually, with, I think, four or five techs and graduate (laughs) students at a time. So. Wow. Yeah, to me, that's one of the more fascinating things about your background is, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who have set up COVID test labs, right? And it's normally in the, you know, molecular biology department or, you know, something a little bit more on outside of the fence. But yeah. um, as an engineer myself, I was fascinated by your background. You know, I think I shared with you before that whole idea of engineering problem solving, right? You know, if you can get the biology part to work, which is outside of my expertise, then I'm sure we can find a way to make it more efficient or optimize it, like you said. And Right. I think that's the thing when the pandemic started, the PCR techniques and kind of doing plate assays for a lot of tests at once were things that we were already doing in research labs. You know, it's a pretty common technique. And so how to make those types of systems in for a clinical setting and getting them, you know, doing things like automated sample handlers and things like that. So we used open source sample handling machines. That's all more the engineering side, which is more my wheelhouse. Like as long as the assay was kind of good and validated, that was okay. That said, I did collaborate a lot. So it was not just me by myself. I worked with faculty in chemical engineering, microbiology, genetics, bio, public health. So it was a big team effort at Clemson. And then a shout out to our athletics department, because when we were collecting the data to validate the test, a lot of it came from our student athletes. That first summer, they had mandatory testing, and they were getting tested between one to three or four times a week with nasal pharyngeal swabs and PCR. So the student's would get nasal pharyngeal swabbed, and then they would volunteer to give us a spit sample so we would collect enough data for validating the test. By like middle end of the summer, I felt so bad for the student athletes. Like some of them, their noses would bleed on the regular just because it was so many nasal pharyngeal swabs. So everyone was glad when we moved away (laughs) from that. Probably eager to help find a new way. Yeah. (laughs) I can only imagine. You mentioned all the collaborators you had. Where did you do the assay validation? Or you mentioned focusing on the engineering side of it. So how did you get an approved assay? Yeah. So when we started, we had one thermocycler and one sample handler in the lab. And we used that to validate everything. So that's where it was several faculty, a huge number of graduate and undergrad students who volunteered to help with the collections and everything. So once we had the IRB in place, it was just a matter of collecting enough samples for the validation. And that just was a lot of people. And again, shout out to all those people, because a lot of the data came from July in 2020. And For anyone who's been in the uh, South in July, (laughs) it's not pleasant. So most of the testing was happening outdoors because we were worried about, you know, obviously getting people infected if we were indoors doing these collections. So yeah, it was hard work. (laughs) And again, also because at the beginning, people were very, very cautious. We were in like full safety gear with like a face mask and a face shield, like double gloves. Like it was very tiring. 
And so we got, as I said, a lot of samples from our athletics department. And then the only time the university actually mostly was virtual was between the end of March 2020 to July 2020. So after spring break in 2020, they kind of sent the student home and we were virtual for the end of that semester. And then in July 1st, I think, 2020, they did a big screen. So everybody could come back to campus, but you had to get a nasal pharyngeal swab PCR test. So we collected a lot of samples during that time as well. I think that was when people saw really the value of having a saliva test and the workflows to do the testing fast because we were doing the research protocol to do the testing and we would get results back basically the same day. And the nasal pharyngeal swab PCR tests were taking up to a week to get results back. So reasoning those out versus doing the saliva in your lab. Yeah, those were getting sent out to a reference lab. For people who don't know, Clemson University does not have a med school. So we didn't have a high complexity lab at the time. So the validation was done in a lab while we were getting set up to have a CLIA license. Setting up yours. I see. Yeah. And we got more samples of positives from the community. So we worked with community physicians, local state representatives helped set up different community test sites where we could get samples from positives to just have more positives for our validation. And that kind of started a good university community partnership. So when we had everything set up and scaled up, we could open up testing to the community. The university didn't have the resources to completely do all the community testing on their own. So actually groups of community clinicians, so doctors and nurses, volunteered their time to help with the calling of positives and things like that, that we just didn't have the bandwidth to do if we opened up testing to the community. So that enabled the university to offer community testing, which made a big difference in our local upstate South Carolina community. Yeah, there's, I think, a lot of stories like that where, you know, creating the accessibility to the testing was huge, right? Especially when people were having to wait a week, like you mentioned, to get results is very, I can recall myself, like that period of anxiety where you just don't know and like what to do, especially so early on in the pandemic. Uh, And early on, we didn't have at-home tests either. So (laughs) that's a whole nother. (laughs) (laughs) Did you find more efficiency in the saliva? I mean, people are obviously collecting their own saliva rather than being forced to spit by someone else, but versus having a healthcare provider do the nasal swabs. So was there some gains there as well in what you saw? Yeah. So that made it much easier to do. So we had test sites on campus and then in a city park local. And the city park one was a drive-through kind of testing thing. And it was mostly manned by two or three folks at a time. And we did Again, at the peak, something insane, like 3,000 in like an hour. It was insane. (laughs) It's just like the cars were just coming through. And we could not have done that if you had to have a clinician, a nurse or somebody, you know, shove a swab up a nose. Because even if it's monitored collection, you just hand it off, you watch them. It's not like you can do that with multiple people at once. Right. What was it like to get that first, I don't know, whether it was an email or a phone call saying, hey, we need to set up COVID testing. Why do you think they reached out to you? And what was that first feeling that you got there? (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't exactly how it went. (laughs) I got a phone call to be on a committee to talk about test capacity in the state of South Carolina. And so that was early in the pandemic. So maybe like early March. 
And there was a representative from all the research institutions in the state. So I was representing Clemson. There was someone from University of South Carolina, someone from the Medical University of South Carolina, and then the larger health systems. And very quickly, I think after one or two Zoom meetings, it was very apparent that South Carolina did not have the capacity for testing that we were going to need. And so working with University of South Carolina actually is how we started working on this saliva test as an alternative. There were shortages of swabs, like we weren't going to get out of this mess by relying on the swab test. So, and then everyone's like, okay, we need to do something like saliva testing. And everyone kind of got on board. And as I said, multidisciplinary, cross the state collaboration to get this set up. And so that's like validating the test. The setting up the lab, at some point, we're like, okay, well, the test is obviously going to work. And by it's going to work is we had to show that it was basically as accurate as the nasal pharyngeal swab test, because otherwise people weren't going to sign on to do it. And then it was like, well, at Clemson, we don't have a med school. So we had a moderate complexity lab for the student health center, but that's it. And PCR is a high complexity test. So I called up our state health agency, DHEC. Shout out to DHEC for helping me navigate how to set up a CLIA lab. (laughs) Yeah. And they walked me through the process and I was like, okay, this isn't bad. We can totally do this. It really was the university seeing the benefit of setting up a lab on campus, both in terms of right now for COVID, as well as seeing longer term that we could use it for other things after COVID, whether it was for student health and employee health tests, or, you know, helping with some of our outreach to rural communities, or, you know, research and training. Actually, that's a big part was also that we could use it to help train students on clinical lab processes so that when they graduated, they would be competitive for getting those types of jobs. Awesome. I think that's fantastic. You mentioned doing testing and focusing on supporting some of the rural and lower resource areas. I understand you're doing a lot of collaborations and maybe I'm mischaracterizing the volume, but a lot of it is focused in in those types of areas. What does that look like for you and your research? And, you know, what are some of the other programs that you're doing to focus on, on those communities? You know, as I said, before COVID, we had, and I still have these collaborations, both internal to South Carolina. So we collaborate with the Medical University of South Carolina and some of our Clemson rural health colleagues to look at issues of healthcare delivery in rural health settings. And then I have collaborators in Tanzania and India. The partnership in Tanzania is, is interesting because we have some collaborations with the clinical folks, but our biggest collaborator is Arusha Technical College, and they have a bachelor's of biomedical engineering program. And so their engineering students and our engineering students work side by side on design projects and kind of share ideas. And it's been really nice for kind of borrowing innovation from the Tanzania side for some of the US applications and vice versa. And I think that has led to some of the better innovative products that we've worked on. I think you mentioned to me before about, you know, one of the interesting, and it's not a parallel, but when you're looking at the differences between, you know, US and Tanzania, or even low resource settings versus not necessarily low resource settings, some of the challenges are unexpected, right? Infrastructure and, and other things like that. Yeah. So low resource settings, 
is a global problem. I think in the US, when you say that, most people think, ah, yes, developing countries or low and middle income countries. But we have a lot of problems with healthcare delivery in the US, in rural areas, heck, even in middle of the city, sometimes people can't get the healthcare they need. And there are barriers to both access of healthcare. And even if they make it to a clinic in some of these rural areas, those clinics have limited resources to perform some tests and they'll have to get referred to somewhere, you know, an hour or more away. And that is very similar to just about anywhere in the world when there's a low resource setting. I think an interesting thing that's been, especially with our collaboration with both India and Tanzania, their rural low resource areas have other challenges that ours do not. So they tend to have more issues with clean water, reliable electricity. But one thing that they have in those areas that we do not is that everybody has a cell phone. It might not be a smartphone, but it is a cell phone. And so they're doing some really innovative healthcare delivery through texting, through connecting patients with healthcare providers on the phone that when we tried to do that here in the US, doesn't work because in our under-resourced areas, people don't really have a cell phone. And if they do, our network coverage is really lousy. <laughs> so right. my analogy for that is I live 10 minutes away from Clemson main campus. Right. And when I get home, I have maybe two bars of service at home. <laughs> when I'm in the like middle of one of those big parks in Tanzania away from everything, I still have five bars of service. So I think there's a lot we can learn about how to better deliver healthcare from each other in those settings. It made a difference during COVID. We had this cool platform for being able to initiate a test, having a QR code on your phone, and then sending text messages to the patient when the test was ready, yeah. the result was ready. That didn't work in some of our more low resource areas or working with some of the assisted living facilities and things like that. So we had to think through other systems to get the result to the patient. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you talk to us about some of the projects or technologies that you've been collaborating on with these universities or even, you know, just amongst your own research that's happening at Clemson, you know, independently? Yeah, so it's been wide and varied. I keep telling people I don't like getting bored. <laughs> and so my, my research is very broad. I can relate to that. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think one of our current more high-tech in quote projects is a breast pump that has a novel filter system inside it to capture and scrub HIV out of breast milk to prevent mother-to-child transmission of HIV in certain settings. That's still obviously we're validating everything, but that's, you know, materials design and those kinds of things. Wow. So that's a current project. One of our most successful projects actually is we worked with basket weavers in rural Tanzania near one of the hospitals. And one of the issues they were having is they kept running out of cervical collars. So neck braces for after you have a neck injury, they're hard plastic. The supply chain, like they wouldn't get them in time. And so patients would have to sleep on their back in the hospital and take up a bed instead of going home. And so our students work with the basket weaving group of women in the town. They set up a process for how to make basket woven versions of these neck braces and kind of validate, make sure every one you make is validated and everything. And so now they have a partnership with the local hospitals where they can just make them when they need them. 
That's cool. You know, the innovations like that are pretty awesome, right? Because it's something that you wouldn't expect, maybe not even the realm of the technology that you're thinking through, but nevertheless, that's being able to provide better healthcare to someone, you know, that otherwise wouldn't be able to get it. And it creates a business locally, which I think is important long-term. So yeah, yeah, some of our projects have worked a lot on chronic disease management. We had an NIH-funded study looking at HIV AIDS screening with chronic disease screenings in rural Tanzania. And what the clinicians had found is that the bundling chronic disease testing with something like HIV destigmatized the HIV test and people would come in and get tested. But basically the problem was when a patient was diagnosed with HIV, there's all this support of like, here's some meds and there's all these programs. Then patients were coming in and they were getting diagnosed with diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease. And it was kind of like, well, good news, you don't have HIV. Bad news, (laughs) you have this chronic disease. Good luck. (laughs) And we don't have programs set up for yet. (laughs) Yeah, there was no programs for those. And most of the technologies we have to give patients for that don't work in those rural settings, again, because of issues similar actually here. So we worked on things like saliva glucose testing to make it easier to test for diabetics that are kind of in that pre-diabetic type 2 diabetic stage where they can still manage it with diet and exercise. We're working on actually saliva and urine for monitoring patient compliance to their drug regimens, but then also checking for kidney disease and kidney function. And that's, I think, how I got in the saliva space. A lot of those things, you want to avoid blood because collecting blood is difficult. People don't like getting poked. Transporting blood is difficult. (laughs) And so if you can do the same kinds of things with other non-blood biofluids, so saliva or urine, it's just easier to handle. There's less biological, well, especially with urine, there's a lot less issues with contamination and things like that. So yeah, at the start of the pandemic, that was the other thing. In the freezer, I had pre-pandemic spit, which was at the time a hot commodity as a control. I also had dog spit in the freezer that we could use as a control. So yeah. Okay. A lot of people are storing all those samples now, but you wouldn't have thought before how precious that could have been. Yeah, we have, I think in our biorepository, we have something like 20,000 positive COVID samples in the freezer. They're de-identified because obviously you don't keep that data. But we started because we got an NIH grant to sequence the samples and kind of track variants as they came in, which for anyone listening, I think this is something that for future pandemics, we really should look at is tracking variants and things like that in more rural communities, because most of that happened, especially initially in big cities, which is great, better than nothing. But what we're finding in our data is that in the rural communities, you get these pockets of older variants that still are around, and then a new variant comes in and you get weird recombinants and things like that. If you look at, you know, Omicron and That's where they came out of. They came from some of these rural areas as opposed to out of the cities. So I think it's important to have kind of that network of monitoring and helping for public health that covers not just the highly densely populated areas, but some of the more rural, less populated areas as well. What do you think is one of the challenges today in accomplishing that? Well, so for sequencing and variants, it's expensive frankly. <laughs> like, there are technologies to, you know, 
make it a little bit cheaper, but it is, I think for the PCR COVID test, it's like $4 total, maybe of reagents and things like that. You know, most sequencing, it's going to run you like 60 to 100 bucks a sample. Also, most of the sequencing technologies, the instruments themselves are very expensive. And so like rural health labs aren't going to have access to those. Right. That's not to say that every lab should have a sequencer necessarily, but having a mechanism for people to send in their samples so that they do get monitored is important. And then one thing we did develop in the lab is kind of rapid PCR-based screening assays. So once you have a positive, uh, you can do some secondary PCRs to identify at least probably which variant it is. It's not going to do a whole genome sequence, but you can look for those sequences to figure out which of the circulating variants it is. And if there's a new variant coming in, kind of identify those samples quickly, because then you want to send those to sequence quickly. So when Omicron was coming, that's what we were doing with all our samples. So that basically, as soon as the first sample came, that we were like, this is almost certainly Omicron, because we did that secondary screen. It was 24, 48 hours later that we had sent it. And this we had sent to a commercial lab and paid more money to do that sample and just be like, we want it as fast as you can get it (laughs) so that we could tell people that variant was now in our community. And now are you doing sequencing in your lab now or... Well, in my lab, we do sequencing. I have collaborators at the Clemson University Genomics and Bioinformatics Facility that have really nice sequencers. In the lab, we have kind of like a little nanopore sequencing system as well. That's awesome. But yeah, so we have this kind of partnership where samples come in, we extract the RNA, and we can sequence the virus to check what variants are, are circulating. And as I said, that's kind of the interesting things that came out of that was we were expecting our area to be similar to the rest of the state or maybe Atlanta, because we're only two hours away from Atlanta. But throughout the pandemic, most of the new variants of concerns tended to hit our community a little bit later than the rest of the state. And during the lulls, we definitely had more genomic diversity in the variants that we were seeing than other places. I mean, we still had people showing up positive for the Delta variant in like this past summer, like a year ago, whereas it was gone from just about anywhere else. So, Wow. I think that's pretty fascinating what you can understand when you have that level of information. So you mentioned, you know, one of the reasons that the university was interested in funding, you know, the starting up of this lab was to support further research and, you know, student training, but also perhaps your community health center. You were telling me about some of the interesting work you're doing there. You know, perhaps you can share some more of that with us. Sure. We're still doing COVID testing. Now that we're not doing thousands of COVID tests a day. Yeah, sure. Well, that's good too. We've been working with our student and community health folks and looking at other tests that we could kind of apply the same principles we did with COVID to make them lower cost, more accessible, and easier for people to do. One of the big areas has been STI screening. A lot of those tests, you know, the PCR tests are very expensive when they get done in a lab and people wait to do them because of the expense, because of having to go in to do a test. And so we're trying to validate in-house Kind of the same principle, a lower cost version of the test. We're starting with urine, but I think we're going to also try saliva and basically looking at 
kind of the same idea as we had in Tanzania with HIV and other diseases to destigmatize the test, kind of doing a panel where you test for STIs, but you know, if you're looking at urine, you also test for UTIs at the same time. Or if you're doing saliva, could you do some a respiratory panel and we're on a college campus, EBV, mono, and a couple other things at the same time so that people will just be like, hey, I'm feeling off. I'm just going to (laughs) test on campus. You know, you work with your student health center. So if it is a positive test for something, they get a follow-up call from the student health center being like, hey, here's your meds (laughs) or uh, come and talk. Stay in your dorm room. (laughs) Yeah. I think we did a survey of students back in the fall, like basically surveyed them. This one was really focused on flu testing and things like that. And just to get their opinions and feelings toward testing. And I think one thing that's interesting is after, so, you know, it was in the fall. So these students have lived through the pandemic. They were very open to if the testing was available and they didn't have to go to a pharmacy or the student health center. If it was somewhere easily accessible, it was like if they'd been exposed to something, they were highly likely, or at least that's what they said, to go get tested at like an on-campus testing center where they could just pop in and get a test, much more so than going to the pharmacy and getting an over-the-counter test or something like that. Sure. And then if they had symptoms, they would want to know what it was. And that surprised us. We were expecting students to be more blasé about it. They're like 19 to like 22 year olds. They think they're invincible. (laughs) But no, I think through the pandemic, people have realized like, you know, I'm not feeling great. It'd be nice to know what I have so that if I need treatment, I can go get treated. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I thought it was pretty innovative how you would uh, identify to people where you would place the collections, right? To make it easy to see. And yes, my vision is in the bathrooms, you know, you have your vending machines for things. You have a thing for a test kit. The box is kind of nondescript. If you are feeling like you might have a cold or the flu or whatever, you can spit in it and we'll do a respiratory panel. If something's looking a little weird down there, you put urine in it and we can do a STI (laughs) panel, but it's there. And that's kind of like the long-term goal is kind of helping, particularly on campus, students take ownership of their health. Meet people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. You know, really what I've learned from the pandemic and some of the work we're doing after that is meeting people where they are, right? Like you're suggesting, and that's the accessible part of the healthcare, right? It's not just about cost, which is important, right? But making it in a place where they can be comfortable or trusting, right? Depending on the community that they're in to get the results. I think the other thing I learned from working with collaborators in low and middle income countries is accessible healthcare is not necessarily mean cheap healthcare. It means having healthcare where someone can come in or someone has access to those things. It's not necessarily the cheapest thing that might be the best. It might be the thing that's the easiest to deliver or something where they don't need replacement parts. You know, we had some projects on like patient monitoring where all the patient monitors nowadays have like all these disposable sensors and like how to make one that doesn't. It's maybe a little bit more expensive, but at least you don't have to keep replacing sensors. (laughs) So those kinds of things, I think make a difference for accessibility. So it's not always just about the cost. Cost, yeah, absolutely. Are there any other exciting things you want to share or any other cool things on the horizon in your lab that, that you're most excited about? Well, so I'm a department chair now as of, I think it's been a week and a half. 
Congratulations. I'm excited. Hopefully, this is the first podcast that we can introduce Dr. Delphine Dean, the new chair of bioengineering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to our listeners. Thank you. <laughs> I did like step up thinking like, well, I've spent, you know, two, three years running COVID testing, running a department can't be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> But I am excited on the education front. I think that's part of why I stayed in academia is the students really come up with some really out of the box, innovative ideas. And sure, they don't all pan out, but like that's been part of the fun part of my job is kind of enabling students to work on those, validate, see if it'll work. And if it works, kind of supporting them to move these projects forward. And so that's kind of what I'm most excited about. And I really think the students that are now in college or are just coming through college, they lived through the pandemic and having online classes and everything. And they have a different attitude. They really are thinking about these issues of accessibility because they had to live through having to work through having more accessible teaching methods and healthcare and all that stuff. So I'm kind of excited about the things that are coming out that we will see from them. I'm sure we're all very smart and we can come up with things, but I think the next generation, they have that mindset now of thinking of health as an accessible thing that we all should have access to. That's great. You get a different perspective. It's almost unfiltered, right? Without the biases that we have from our past. Yeah, there's so many times it's like, but why can't we do that? I'm like, well, you see in the US system, there's insurance and then like, blah. And then like, so yeah, they haven't been beaten down with all that yet. (laughs) Yeah. That's great, though. That's what it's going to take, I think, to make the changes that we need to see. Well, look, Delphine, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. You know, really your passion for bioengineering and making a difference in all of our communities, but also our low resource communities and making healthcare more accessible is really inspiring to me. The diverse research you have going on in the field of bioengineering diagnostics is incredible. And coming from an engineering background myself, it's really exciting to see how you can pull all these interdisciplinary fields together and have such a positive output. So I'm grateful for what you're doing today in your line of work and also what you're sharing with our audience. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Delphine Dean or talk to her about the future of healthcare in your lab, you know, we'll post a link to her website in this episode's show notes, which you can find on our podcast site, www.spititoutpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Spit It Out podcast. I'm your host, Avi Robbins. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on our journey to raise awareness about saliva diagnostics, the future of healthcare, and hear stories from some really awesome industry and academic leaders.